Good morning, church. It's good to exalt him with you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at the church. It's a privilege to be able to exalt him with you this morning and, and to do that through song and to continue to do that through the word. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be exalting him in John chapter 9, seeing Jesus revealed to us in this gospel. So if you have your Bibles, we encourage you to, to have those open before you. we got copies out in the foyer to the left in the bookshelf if you need one, and you can even have it. Uh, today's message comes out of this chapter of John, but first wanted to say our, our church staff takes an annual retreat. Uh, we're usually down in Homer uh, in, in the fall, and we, we have three days of eating way too much food, uh, stepping on way too many children, uh, and when all those children go to bed, it's time for our games. Uh, one of our favorite games involves a Nerf gun and a blindfold. Um, thanks, Sabrina, for introducing this one to us. And one person gets blindfolded. They're given a Nerf gun, and they spin around ten times. And everybody else in the living room hides, trying not to get shot by our blinded Nerf assassin. Whoever gets hit is up next. Ladies and gentlemen, your church staff. Um, that's a... Uh, <laughs> Even a blind squirrel gets an acorn every once in a while, right? No. There's a man born blind today. I was just tying that in. Um, so I, I just can't help, as I think about this game, to consider all the profound spiritual implications of this blinded Nerf gun game, which, of course, is the reason we play it as a church staff. Um, when you're blindfolded and you're in, uh, in the room, the same, you can be in the same room as everybody else, but your experience is totally different. I, these are my colleagues, Right, my 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 our spouses, people I would consider friends and family in Christ, um, but with that blindfold on, they become terrifying enemies. <laughs> and the love seat turns into a stumbling block. The 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 this toys the children left out when they went to bed become terrifying death traps uh, to walk on. And I heard a noise over there. No, it's just over there. And and I am blind to reality, and it's scary. Right. But when I, when I take the blindfold off after I finally nailed somebody, I can see reality as it really is. How, how can I see? Well, there's this, at the, high, at the top of this high ceiling where we are, there's this light. And this light, not only can I see the light with my blindfold off, but that light allows me to see by its light that it gives off everything else in the room. And, and I think this is what C.S. Lewis is referring to um, what Jesus does in our lives, C.S. Lewis says the following. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, the sun, but because by it, by the sun, I see everything else. And what he's saying is Jesus can remove our blindfolds so that not only can we see him, but through him we can see all reality as it is is. We can see ourselves the way we are. We can see those around us the way they are. We can see our suffering, and we can see our God in light of Jesus. Last week, we heard in John chapter 8, he claimed, I am the light of the world. And here in John chapter 9, we're going to see what happens when that light shines into our darkness, like Jesse talked about. Some people in John chapter 9 ask the Lord to take the blindfold off, and he does, and they're able to see. Some people in John chapter 9 think they see, and they turn away from him, blinded, as it were, by the light, and saying, no, 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 Jesus, I can see perfectly well on my own. 
We want to ask ourselves as we read this morning in John chapter 9, um, am, I, am I seeing reality by his light or am I walking around with a blindfold on? And yes, I know that my title reference is a 70s song as well. Right. <laughs> Ripped up like a deuce, another runner in the night. I am, my mom lived in the 70s, so I've lived vicariously through her. Um, number one, how do we see, how to see the dark in our world? How should we see the dark in our world? Uh, John chapter 9, if you've got it with me, uh, let's start here at the beginning, verse 1. As he, Jesus, the pronoun there, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. As Jesus was passing by, he sees a man born blind. There's a lot of wordplay in this chapter. Here Jesus is seeing a man who has never been able to see anything. My father-in-law was uh, an elder at my my wife's church down in California, her home church, and uh, he preached on this uh, chapter in John 9 uh, years ago. And uh, he, this man born blind, he called for short the MBB, the man born blind. So in some in-law solidarity, uh, I'm going to call him MBB for short as we go forward. Uh, Verse 2, his disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' own disciples ask him, Jesus, who sinned in this situation, the man or his parents? Now, it was common in that day to see sin and suffering as closely linked. And I I hadn't noticed this before reading it this this week, that if he's born blind, they're saying if he sinned, like, that would mean he somehow sinned in utero, right? Or, they said, or his parents were born. Now, one line of thought in that day was if a pregnant woman worshipped in a pagan temple, that her unborn baby could be uh, regarded as having participated in that rite with, with her mother. Could have, or his mother could have been what they were thinking at the time. Now, in one sense, and we'll talk about this more, yes, in a general sense, the sinful fall of mankind has led to all the suffering in our world. And, and yet, and, I, and I, it was helpful the way D.A. Carson said this about this line, said, but once theologians move from generalizing statements about the origin of the human race's malady, so just kind of how everything got here, they, and, and they move to tight connections between sin, the sins and the sufferings of an individual, in other words, why this particular suffering happened and how it relates to a specific sin, he says they go beyond the biblical evidence. There was a family who talked to me. They all have a, a common malady in their family. And they had been told by multiple churches that there was clearly a, a sin issue in their family that they needed to repent of. Heard a story of a mom who had miscarried. Someone told her, well, clearly there's sin in your life. And I, like, I, I honestly think that's just a form of spiritual abuse. Like, you can't know that and make that judgment and say it out loud to somebody else. And wasn't this the error of Job's friends? So well, clearly there's sin here, Job, but they did not see behind the curtain of heaven. They did not know what God was up to and what was going on in Job's life. Now, we know in Scripture, it does teach there can be times when suffering and illness are directly tied to a sin. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they lie and, they, and they, they fall down dead. Makes you talk a little bit more carefully, doesn't it? Like Miriam in Numbers 12, her illness is directly connected to a sin in her life. But we see also tons of evidence in Scripture where that's not the case. We see Job is a great example of that. Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about in Corinthians 12. The disciples here, when they ask Jesus who sinned in this situation, either the man or his parents, they ask a bad question. 
This is called a false dilemma fallacy, where you set up an either or and ignore the fact that there might be more options available. And we do this in our lives when we talk about innocent suffering, which is a complicated term in the first place. But we'll say, well, that proves that either, if you see someone suffering, and it doesn't seem to be something they brought on themselves, either God is not all loving, right, and he's a cruel God, who does this unjustly, or he's not an all-loving God, or he's not an all-powerful God, meaning he loves us, but wasn't powerful enough to prevent it or stop it. Which one is it? Well, it's a false dilemma. Jesus shows us a third way. Look at verse 3. Neither, he says, this man nor his parents sinned. Now, Jesus can speak to this with authority because he's God. Jesus answered, this came about, and here he says is the reason behind this man, being born blind. This came about so that God's works, God's works might be displayed in him. So that God's works might be displayed in him. Now this so that can be translated like, or like the idea of with the result that, meaning God used this blindness for his glory, or it could mean in order that. Like in other words, that God caused this in the first place. Now, Really, either way, we see that his blindness from birth was not outside of God's control, and therefore it's not outside of God's bigger and better purposes. And Jesus says, my father wanted to show his works that are good and powerful in the MBB's life. He continues in verse 4 and 5, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, again, I'm the light of the world, and as long as I'm here, this is, he's referring to night is coming, which means there's a period of time where Jesus is going to be taken away from his disciples. Um, this is a unique season, he's pointing out, when God is in flesh on the earth. It's what we're celebrating this time of year. And then he's showing himself in unique ways, but just for a season, so pay attention while the light of the world is here. He goes on in verses 6 and 7. After he said these things, he spit on the ground made some mud from the saliva, ew, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which, meant, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Here's the work that God wanted to display in this man's life. Now, scholars uh, agree that it's, it's kind of hard to know the specific meaning behind Jesus' mud technique here, so we're not going to major on the minors. But... Notice here, and this is important, Jesus didn't prevent the man from being born blind in the first place. It, it happened. He lived that way. But Jesus did provide healing for the man. He didn't prevent darkness in the man's life, but he shone his light into his, dark, into his darkness. And as John 1 says, the darkness did not overcome it. He didn't, we, we like this, the MBB, are born blind from birth. Spiritually, we, we don't see God rightly. We don't see ourselves rightly. We don't see others rightly. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is a, a, a down through church history, these are truths that have been echoed in the church. It says, all misery, so the, the fall of man, back in, back in the garden, right? Sin came into the world and death through sin. And it says, all miseries in this life, ultimately, Death itself and the pains of hell forever come from this sinful fall. So like we said, in a sense, all the misery that we experience can point back uh, to, to sin entering into the world. And the beauty of what Jesus came to do 
is to reverse the curse of that fall, to redeem all of our misery, death itself, and the pains of hell forever so that we can see God rightly again and be with God rightly again. And this is the gospel hope. Our, our gospel hope is not, it's in the redemption of all sin and suffering, not in its prevention. Not in the prevention of sin and suffering, but in the redemption of sin and suffering. We live in a dark world. That's the reality. But Jesus' light is breaking in. Jesus said here, the purpose of healing the man born blind was so that the works of God could be displayed in him. And aren't we, aren't we living that reality out right now, 2,000 years later? You and I have the privilege of reading this story and seeing what God did in the life of this man. Now you think about this. This man was blind up into adulthood at some point. But now, you say, was that worth it? Was that God being cruel? Well, here, when the blinders come off, he sees the person of Jesus standing in front of him. A privilege that few on this world, this earth, have up to date ever experienced. And we know, we're going to see at the end of the chapter, that he is given by faith the ability to see Jesus in the light of eternity forever and ever. God uses this man's blindness so that he could see Jesus, but also so that we could see Jesus rightly. We read him in this story. But how do we see him rightly? Well, let's keep reading for that. How we don't see the light of the world. Let's talk about some blinders that we see in this chapter. Uh, look with me down in verse 13. Uh, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. So they bring the man to the Pharisees, which was common in the day when something crazy happened, you go to the religious authorities. Like today, we'd probably call the cops. Like, you guys got to come and check this out, right? For them, they'd bring it to the religious authorities. And we see three blinders. The first one we see is trying to fit Jesus into our mold. Look at verse 14. That the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was, uh-oh, a Sabbath. Once again, Jesus is getting in trouble for doing things on the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man told them. I washed and I can see. Now some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They said, clearly this man can't be from God because he's violating the Sabbath. Now what we know is Jesus, born under the law, as a Jew, never violated God's actual commands, the heart of God's law. Here what he violated was their oral tradition and law they had laid on top of it. A couple of things they might have seen him violating. Number one, they said that unless the healing was life-threatening, you couldn't do it on the Sabbath. And they would have said this, this healing wasn't actually life-threatening. Also, there was no kneading allowed. There's probably a play on words there. And here's Jesus, right, with his spittle and the dust, his little mud pie, this little spa treatment for the man born blind. And they would have said, uh-uh, right, outside of our paradigm. Now, th their conclusion is Jesus violated the Sabbath, so he can't be from God. And they're wrong on both accounts, right? But don't we do the same thing? We can often create a standard for God that he never created, and then we hold him to that standard and dismiss him when he fails to meet it. We might say, Jesus is supposed to prevent all the bad things from happening in my life, and when he didn't, I'm out. When Jesus didn't let my life go the way I wanted it to go, I'm walking away. And what we do is we fabricate our own version of Jesus, maybe to fit our own political agenda, to fit our own idealized American dream, to make, make myself God is what we're essentially doing, and Jesus my genie to, make, to grant my wishes. And when he doesn't fit into my mold, like the Pharisees, we say, well, this, this, he can't be who he claims to be. 
The second blinder we see is a seduction by the spectacular. The seduction by the spectacular. Look at the second half of verse 16. Others were saying, well, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division. So the other line of reasoning was, clearly Jesus can't be sinful. He's got to be a good guy. Look at the signs. Now, there is actually some error in that thinking, too. And we're going to see this from the man born blind later, where he says, well, no, this guy's got to be a prophet. He's got to be from God. Look at what he did. A sinner couldn't do that. Now, it's good, but it's insufficient, that line of reasoning. And why is that? Well, Jesus' signs, they're not nothing, but they're also not everything. And we have to be careful not to believe based solely on signs that we see. You look at the story of Scripture. Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform some of the signs that, that Moses was able to do. We see a warning from Paul in Thessalonians of this man of lawlessness that's coming. He says this man is going to perform signs and miracles. Don't be deceived by those signs. It's easy to be seduced by the spectacular and convinced that Jesus is at work because of something we see. How many hoaxes have we seen through the charismatic movement, of these healing revivals? We've seen Benny Hinn chucking his jacket at people. And look at that. This is, I, should, I should wear a jacket and throw it at you guys. <laughs> See if your cough goes away. Right? Bam! <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So that's fun. Um, we, we read events into our life as obviously from the hand of God and see his leading in that. And that can be really dangerous, guys. Like, we moved up the Alcan to Alaska, and we didn't have any car breakdowns, so clearly God wanted me to move. If I did have some breakdowns, well, does that mean God didn't want me to move? Like, you see how that could be a dangerous line of thinking? That, man, I, I stole some money from my grandmother, and I went to Vegas and won millions on the slot machines, so clearly God wants me to be a gambling thief. Probably not, right? Like... Deuteronomy 13, it lays out a good test. It says there will, be, there will be prophets that come and even do these signs. They said if that prophet is disloyal to Yahweh, he actually says stone them. It's that Berean line of thinking that whatever I hear and whatever I see, I've got to test that against the word of God. I had someone tell me once that God told them to marry somebody that was an unbeliever. But no, no, he didn't. And I stoned the guy. I didn't, I didn't, I just, I didn't, so I promise. But God never contradicts himself, right? So God says, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. So if you're a believer, he wouldn't tell you. That might have been the pizza you had last night, but that wasn't God speaking through you. We can be seduced by the spectacular. We've got to be wary. The third blinder we see is when people are big and God is small. This is also a title of a book by Ed Welch that I would recommend, talking about the fear of man and, and people-pleasing. So this can play out when we see others as big and God as small. For this, we look at the man born blind, uh, his parents, for, starting in verse 18. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received sight. So here they come. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? They're questioning his parents. And the parents say, well, we know this is our son. That's good. You can always identify your own children. And that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. He's a big boy. His parents said these things. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. 
This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. His parents are afraid, afraid that the leaders will turn on them and kick them out of the synagogue. They see the Pharisees as big, and they see God as small. And this is, this is true, that the, the a fear of man and, and people-pleasing can control our lives and cloud our vision uh, of, of, of Jesus and his path for us. I was in a conversation with uh, somebody a couple of weeks ago, and um, they asked, they, they talked about something, they asked if I was cool with something that I'm totally not cool with, but I stood there, and I couldn't bring myself to say it to their face, and I was like, it's great, <laughs> right? And then later, I had to follow up and apologize and say, man, I, like, I had to speak to what I really believe about that, and that was humbling, humbling to admit that I, I was a coward in the moment, and our fear of how people will see us can keep us hiding in the dark and unwilling to proclaim um, Jesus' light to the world. We can see others as big, but we can also see ourselves as big. Look at verse 24. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind and told him, this is the Pharisees talking, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's an ironic phrase. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Right? We've heard that in the hymn. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I love the sarcasm here. I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Like, are you guys warm into him? D.A. Carson called it some sardonic repartee. I would say, he's sassy, right? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke, has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God didn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Then listen to their response. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you are trying to teach us? Then they what? They threw him out. Just like his parents had feared. That's why they didn't want to answer. They said, you were born entirely in sin, which is a cruel way of them speaking to his sin-caused blindness from their point of view. But unwittingly, they're also undermining their own, their own objective here. They wanted to prove that Jesus didn't heal this guy, that Jesus isn't from God. But if he was born blind and born in sin, like they're saying, then Jesus must have opened his eyes because he can clearly now see, right? And what we see here is, man, how sin, how our proud hearts can blind us from the truth. And what's even standing or sitting right in front of us, it's, it's clouding their, their clarity of thought. And doesn't that happen to us all the time? Like I can see myself getting so hung up on being seen as right that man, I can blindly cling to an argument or a position and start doing all sorts of foolish things as a result. So what do we do? What's the way forward? How we see, let's look finally at how we see light by his light. First of all, that blinders are removed by faith in the word of God. Look with me, starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, 
He is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said. What's ironic here is that the man born blind has been given physical sight, but it's when he hears that Jesus is the Son of God that he responds by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And his blinders are now spiritually removed. We also see blinders being removed by the worship of Jesus himself. Look at how that verse concludes. I believe, Lord, he said, verse 38, and he worshiped him. What's his response? It's worshiping Jesus. It's magnifying the Savior that he sees right in front of him. It's what John Piper said. The man born blind is seeing in more ways than one and savoring the person of Jesus Christ. And he concludes the chapter this way. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. What's that mean? Verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and, and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? Are you talking about us? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. What's Jesus saying here? He's summing up this teaching and saying, I came as the light of the world. And two things will be accomplished through this. First of all, those who admit that they are blind and those who cry out for rescue will be able to see a savior to savor. Those who cry out and admit their unbelief, like we sang about earlier in our new Christmas song, will be given the ability to see and savor the savior. But those who think they can see are shown to be actually blinded by their own sin. And so where are, where are we at today? Where are you at? Are you crying out for sight and admitting that you can't see on your own? Or are you walking around thinking you got it all figured out and I can see things as they are? We heard in our opening that Lewis said that we not only see the sun by the light, right, but by it, his light we see all else. And uh, we actually saw this in our opening uh, this morning. Psalm 36 beautifully says, in your light we see light. Lewis had another helpful analogy in an essay he called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And he says in his opening, he says, I was standing today in, in a, the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with its specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. He steps into that, that beam of light. Instantly, the whole picture, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, some 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. It's the difference of looking at our circumstances and looking along them and seeing Jesus in them. And I want us to think this through in our own lives. You and I, like, like the MBB here, we are born blind. We're spinning around the room with a Nerf gun and we can't see anything in front of our faces. 
I can't see myself. I can't see my suffering. I can't see other people the way Jesus sees them. I don't see myself as I really am and who I can become, am going to become in Christ. So how do we see through the gospel lenses? How do we see by faith and not by physical sight? How do I look along the beam and not just at the beam? Well, let's think about this thing in three areas. First of all, seeing ourselves along the beam of Jesus' light. How do we do this? Well, the first step, as we see in this chapter, is to admit that we can't see. Proverbs 26, it says, there's more hope for a fool than one who is wise in their own eyes. We can be so convinced that we're right on things. When I look back in my life and see how many things I was wrong on, that ought to give me humility for what's to come, right? So first of all, admitting I can't see reality on my own. But the second step is then by faith to see and savor Jesus as he really is. Philippians 3, Paul says, man, I've learned, as I've seen Jesus Everything else is just a pile of refuse to me now. The value of knowing my Savior. He says, even my own attempts at being right before God, man, I'm throwing that out the window, and now I know the only ability I have to stand in God's presence and be accepted by him is Christ's righteousness on my behalf. And then how do we walk forward? How do we take our daily steps now with Jesus? Well, in 1 John, he talks about what it means to walk in the light. And what he says is walking in Jesus' light now as a believer is not sinless perfection. He says if we claim to be without sin, we're calling God a liar. Like, he knows us. He knows we're still in process. Well, he says if we confess our sin, even as believers, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how can a just God forgive the sin that I'm confessing? My favorite moment of this story comes in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. Where does Jesus go? He goes out to the man and he finds him. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching when he says, I will leave the 99 and go out to find the one. In Hebrews 13, it talks about this moment of Jesus echoed in the Old Testament. It says, under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin. And the body of the animals were burned outside the camp. Why? Because they were seen as dirty, unholy. These animals had just symbolically received the sins of the people. And now there was death. There was blood. And, and to keep the camp cleansed, they put this animal and its entrails outside of the city. Keep the people holy. And he says that was a picture. That Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates. Why? Why was he crucified and left for dead outside the gates? Because he had the weight of our sin on him. But the beautiful thing is the reason Jesus went outside the city is so that we could be ushered in. He says, Two, this is why he did that, to make his people holy by the means of his own blood. Jesus went out so that we could be welcomed in and forgiven. Then I love where the author of Hebrews takes it next. So let's go out with him. Let's go out to Jesus, outside the camp, and bear the disgrace he bore. Now, like our Savior, we're sent to go out into the world, proclaim the name of Jesus, and even suffer for the sake of Jesus. 
Because this is not our home. That's where he lands the plane. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. So let's go suffer like our Savior and with our Savior, which leads us to the second thing that we look along the beam with, our own suffering. What is the goal of our life? One of the reasons we get thrown off by things like suffering and make that question God is because we forget what his ultimate purposes are. God's ultimate purpose for me is not to live a suffering-free life. That's not because he doesn't care about me. That's actually because he has something even better for me. And that is that Christ would be magnified in me. Philippians 1, Paul talks about this. He says, this is it. He was a single-minded man. And he says in Philippians 1, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whatever happens to me, I continue to live or I die, that Christ would be honored, that he would be magnified. Down in verse 29, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Not only do we magnify Christ and we believe in him and declare him to be who he says that he is as Messiah and King of Kings and the Prince of Peace, we also magnify him when we suffer for his name. To magnify Christ. And we ask ourselves in our own lives, how can I magnify him in my suffering? To magnify means, like a magnifying glass, for people, myself and others, to see him as bigger, to see him more closely, to see him as more beautiful, To see him is better. And I've seen him in my own life using my suffering to deepen my dependence on him. I've found when I need Jesus to be the most real, he is. I've also seen the way that he uses my suffering and, and comforts me through the valley to then be able to comfort others when they've walked through those kind of things. I see this in our church family. Many of you have been praying for Sheila Isaac. Lady in our our church, October 15th, she was fine. Out of nowhere, a brain disease hit her, and her body has just been plummeting downhill ever since. And and right now, we're probably within 24 hours to 48 hours of her death. Spending time with the Isaac family this week and they're believers in Jesus. And being in the house with them, praying for Sheila, grieving for Sheila, and watching them trust their Savior through suffering. And I've walked out of their home seeing Jesus in bigger and more beautiful ways than I ever have. This is not our home. There is a day coming when every wrong will be righted, when the light will be completely overcome by the darkness. Today is not that day. What we've been praying, it's not, Lord, if you will heal Sheila, it's a matter of when. We're asking for it on this version, but we know it's coming one day in her resurrection body. Which leads us to the mission that we're on. This is real. Sin and death is real. And so how do we see others along the light of Jesus' beam? helpful perspective uh, from David Brooks and the way we see people. He says, not only does it matter how we talk to people, but even the way that they see us seeing them before we've ever opened a word up out of our mouth. 
He says, if you see the world with critical eyes, you'll see flaws in people. And that's not hard to do. It's easy to be a critic. Like, we're all jacked up, right? So we can see each other's cracks. That's not, well, let me rephrase that. We can see each other's <laughs> flaws and sins. Okay, Didn't, that one's not on the live stream, so we're good. Um, he says, but if you see the world with generous eyes, you'll see people in the struggle doing the best that they can. Like, how do we see others? The Pharisees saw the man born blind with flaws. They despised him and rejected him. They kicked him out of the synagogue. His parents saw the world through eyes of fear. They were just concerned about what everybody else thought about them through the fear of disapproval by others. But Jesus, thinking outside of himself, saw others through the light of love. He saw them as they were, as Brooks says, trying to make sense of this world and to see it rightly. But the problem was they had a blindfold on, right? Like, and this is our mission as disciples of Jesus, to go out of the camp, like to go out where he is and bear his name and his shame as we speak to the world hard truths that we are all blindfolded and need to see the light. And that includes us, where we were before Jesus, and even now, we still have cloudy vision. We see in a mirror dimly. But he's shining his light brighter and brighter. Guys, we gotta learn how to see others the way that our God sees them, image bearers that he loves and longs to save from their sin so they can see Jesus and the beauty and the goodness that he is. I wanted to end with a prayer from Augustine of Hippo. It's always good to pray with a guy from Hippo. He, he wrote this, he prayed this 1,500 years ago, but I think it's just as fitting for today. So if you'd pray with me. He said, you, you Lord, you have become my hope You have become my comfort. You have become my strength. You have become my all. In you does my soul rejoice. The darkness vanished from before my eyes, and I beheld you, the sun of righteousness. When I loved darkness, I knew you not, but wandered on from night to night. But you, you led me out of that blindness. You took me by the hand and called me to yourself. And now I can, now we can thank you and your mighty voice, which has penetrated to my inmost heart. And all God's people said,